0: do with what we've done but it's to do with what God has done. So the question... Right. Okay. Wow. That's loud. Okay. So the... That, that, that Luther was uh, making clear because there was a great deal of emphasis on how you had to be a good person. You had to kind of get good works that outweighed your bad works to, pick, to get into a good book with God. And, uh, and what Luther saw from reading the Bible was that actually we would never be able to do enough good works to get a good book with God. Uh, because our sin is, you know, we're more sinful than we realise, as we've already heard and sang in our songs. But because we're more loved than we will ever dream, God has done something about that, and he has made a way. And uh, we can thank God for this. So. Uh, but the question then arises, does Christianity make people lazy? And that's a question even asked in the Bible. And uh, But if you go back into the Old Testament, that certainly is not God's intention. Now, I don't know whether you ever look at ants. Uh, I remember as a t- kid, I used to use a magnifying glass to burn them up and things. I don't recommend that. It's just something boys do. There's, I've, there's other people giving me the eye that they've done that same thing. That's, uh, c- boys can be really cruel. Um, the Bible is honest about what people are like. I'm sorry I burned up those ants. But anyway, when you look at ants, you'll never see an ant doing this, will you? Next slide. Right, you do not see ants um, just uh, sunbathing. You don't see them on their backs unless they're dead, unless I've been at them with my magnifying glass. Right? And um, because they... Um, and, and the proverb, there's a proverb the next slide Peter says this go to the ant you sluggard consider its ways and be wise it's a proverb, a section of the Bible with lots of wise sayings in it and, uh, and it says look if you just look into nature, look at the ants you see how busy they are and so don't you be lazy, be wise rather than foolish, laziness is foolishness but being diligent and hard working is wise Um <clears throat> But uh, as I say, last week we saw that actually God, God, we can't ever by working hard please God. And so is it really right to try to do that by our own efforts when God actually wants to give us a, a gift of being in good relationship with him as a donation? It's just a free gift. It is not by works. This is what Luther discovered and what is spoken about in so much of the New Testament and so um, that is the true gospel. So will Christians just be lazy then? Do we just think, oh, right, don't need to do anything. I'll lay back on that petal and sunbathe for the rest of my life. Well, we're doing a series about the Bible and the Holy Spirit. And I want to say that if you look across the whole Bible, it describes two kinds of salvation. There, there is an important kind of salvation, which is wisdom for fools. And there's also an important kind of salvation, which is forgiveness for sinners. And we need both of those things. And uh, most people in this world, even if they don't follow Christ or follow other religions, probably agree that wisdom for fools is useful. It's helpful to find out that, you're, that it's good to brush your teeth so you don't need to have fillings and toothache and abscesses and stuff like that. Agreed. And so when, you, when your children are born, obviously they don't have teeth at first, but once they get teeth, you teach them to clean their teeth. You don't say, oh, I'm going to wait until they're an adult and let them decide for themselves. Because it would be too late, wouldn't it? So you bring uh, wisdom to potential foolishness and you instruct them in that. So since it's uh, uh, widely recognized um, that wisdom for foolishness is a very useful thing, we can sometimes think, well, actually, we don't teach about that very often on a Sunday, very obviously. I think we do, actually. But the truth is... Um, that as on Sunday we often major that that other dimension, the unique dimension Jesus added, which is forgiveness for sinners, and uh, we will come back to that later on. But in the meanwhile, let's recognise the Bible is not silent about wisdom for fools, and neither is God's church either, because as Christians, uh, you know, in local churches, Helen, when you're running a parenting courses or you're doing eat well, spend less, and training people to cook, we're bringing wisdom to, f- to, to foolishness. We are bringing wise thoughts. When we do marriage courses, we're bringing wise advice Uh, To people about their marriages, when we run debt advice services or debt money management courses, or other churches do that now, we we are we are helping people by bringing wisdom to foolish behaviour, and that helps people's lives. And it is a kind of salvation. It's not an ultimate kind of salvation, but it's a very beneficial thing. And across the centuries, Christians have done good in the community. They have sought to bring wisdom to foolishness, and it is part of our calling in the gospel for the blessing of our community that we do these things and the bible is full of such wisdom and so, because the Bible wants us to make a success of our lives, and uh, and it knows how to. And so, you know, I find it amusing because they're proposing now that every workplace should have a code, so that men know not to touch women on their backsides or their breasts when they're at work that they're not married to. And you think, duh! I mean, do we? You know, isn't this obvious? I mean, I'm sixty years old. I've always known that. You know. Do you understand? It seems like crazy. And it's been in the book for a very, very long time, right? And so it's a a weird world. Maybe it is helpful to have these codes as well, but they have to have codes about so many different things. But there we go. Anyway, I want to read another section from the book of Proverbs because it has quite a lot to say about sluggards. It's an old-fashioned word, isn't it, a sluggard? A sluggard is someone who behaves like a slug. And slugs, proverbially, are very, very slow, aren't they? It, mind you, they can eat an awful lot of vegetables overnight, don't you think, for something that's <laughs> slow, I mean. But nevertheless, um, I think that's where it comes from. So Proverbs 24, verses 30. Uh, through to 34 just a short passage a lot of the book of proverbs is just short little one-liners but this is a section where the 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 wise person writing this the sages as they're called where sage is a wise person um, sort of it makes a little bit of an extended metaphor so he sent he, he first of all starts by saying this i went past the field of a sluggard past the vineyard of someone who has no sense So a sluggard is someone who has no sense. Someone who has no sense is a sluggard. And what did the person see in this field? Thorns had come up everywhere, the ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. (laughs) Dun-dun-dun-dun. Next slide, Peter. We move on to verse 32. I, I've watched this, I applied my heart to what I observed in this field. And I learned a lesson from what I saw in this field. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. So... If we move on to the next slide, it gives, goes back to the verse before. This the, the, the sage or the wise person, we're told, walks around looking at the world around them. Do you see? Just walking along the road like this. And oh, there's that field. Look, the walls are broken down. There's all weeds, uh, all these thorns there. And so the, 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 these Old Testament writers, these Old Testament saints, those who followed God, those uh, 3,000 odd years ago, they looked at the world around them and they saw in the creation lessons for daily life. And that's a good thing for us to learn. And so, um, they, whether it was the ant or the atom, we can look at things and we can learn. Now, if you heard that one-liner, never trust an atom, they make up everything. <laughs> right? If you think about it. Uh, anyway... Now, in verse 31, we, re- we learn that this wise person sees a farm where the thorns have come up, weeds are covering the whole farm, and the stone walls are in ruins, and... Now, the, you might say, oh, the person might be disabled or something. Listen, Proverbs is not interested in that. Yes, that's a genuine factor, okay? But it's, the Proverbs was written most likely for parents to use with their children to, to train them up in, in good ways and in good character. So that's a nuance that's not covered. But obviously we recognize those things could be a, a factor. But, it's, but that's the, 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 the issue here is that parents want their young people to learn to work hard, to make their way in life. And that's what wise parents want to do. Now, this farm is not producing crops. It's it's uncomfortable because it's got a lot of thorns. It's unproductive because it's just growing weeds. And it's unprotected because there's no walls. And so it's won by someone who's not wise, who has no sense, because they're wasting the resource, that talent that they have been given in life to make good with, they are wasting and nothing's coming of it. This person is a sluggard. And the lesson is driven home in the next few verses. So the next slide, Peter, verse 32 again. I applied my heart to what I observed, and I learned a lesson from what I saw. The wisdom of creation banishes foolishness by a process when we look at those things and notice the consequences of certain actions, or or such like. He looks at that field and thinks, Hmm, hmm, hmm. That's what happens when you stay in bed late every day, go have a nap in the afternoon as well and go to bed early and other people's errors can save you from errors. It's it's obvious, isn't it? And everyone would agree about that. So we don't have to take addictive psychoactive drugs to test whether they're a problem for our lives. We can learn from the example that other people's lives have got messed up that there are lots of violence associated and thieving associated with drug addiction and see how lives, other people's lives are ruined and then think, do you know what, I'm not going to do that. Why would I do that again? Why would I repeat the mistakes I've seen others make? And that's not to say that we don't have a heart for those people and that in the gospel we don't want to see such people rescued, but we don't need to imitate what we see, the, 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 the issues that people falling into. And this is what Proverbs is often about. It's encouraging us to see what has happened with others. And so verses 33 to 34 then define the subtle temptations of, of laziness and uh, temptation often presents itself as our friend and, um, and then it turns out to be in reality our sworn enemy so you see this even in the New Testament the Apostle Peter writes dear friends I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul right? temptations that can appear so friendly and so attractive are actually your sworn enemy and so we read if you go on again the next slide verse 34 says when you just have this little bit of sleep a little bit of slumber a little folding of the hands to rest poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man like a mugger i remember when my daughter emma was at university she was coming back from a party late one night in uh, nottingham and they were mugged by a girl actually who was threatening them with a a weapon and uh, so they handed over their stuff and um and that's not a pleasant experience, is it? Right? If, you, if any of you have had any experience of being threatened or mugged, it's a very, very frightening experience. Even if someone gets a bit verbal with you, you kind of, you're all shaking afterwards, aren't you, and stuff like this. Friends, laziness is like that, or any other sin, but laziness is a basically, when we engage in laziness, it's like we're mugging ourselves, is, is what the wise man is saying. So let's be a little bit practical about this, about laziness and diligence. Of course, diligence and hard work are not always good things, because you can be very diligent and hard working in evil. Right? Some of the plans, you know, sometimes with these terrorist attacks, you later on hear about all the planning they did, and you think, oh, they were very diligent in that. Diligent can be used to pursue evil ends. So diligence and hard work in itself is not necessarily a good thing. And your motivation is very, very important, because... You know, sometimes, actually, even we might be Christians, but actually we're engaged, we're very, very diligent. We're here very early, maybe, uh, in church. But it's because we're wanting to be in control. It's because we don't trust God. And so there can be a kind of hard-working and diligence which is actually based on distrust of God, thinking, I can't really rely on God to make things work out, so I've got to work really hard to make it work out. That, that's not the sort of thing that the scripture seeks in us at all. That's idolatrous. It's an attempt to usurp God's place, to put ourselves in his place. It's a distrust in him. So that, that's not good. And, but I think we should say next, you know, laziness is not commonplace. He, he doesn't say, I went along the road and all the fields were full of thorns and weeds. Do you understand? From my observation, most people actually are quite hardworking and conscientious. And, uh, um, but, you know, I wonder what you presume about with others. I'd just like to ask that question, actually. Because many of us will be part of teams in our workplace. We maybe live in a family and there's other people in the family. I wonder what we assume about other people. Do we assume that other people are lazy or do we assume that other people are conscientious? I think that often flows from your kind of general idea about what you think human beings are like. Because some people are very pessimistic about human nature. They've had a lot of bad experiences and they pretty much think everybody's distrustworthy and such like. Others of us have had more positive experiences of people. So um, a guy I've known for many years called Bryn Hughes um, sets something like this out in a table. as a slide, Peter and, so and, 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 I've modified slightly, but I think sometimes if you're pessimistic about human nature, you can kind of assume people generally lack integrity, that they're fundamentally lazy and desire to do as little as possible, they shirk responsibility, that people need external threats and control if they're going to do anything, um, that people are incapable of directing their own behaviour, etc. You can see this stuff here, yeah? And... Um, But then if you're extremely optimistic about human nature, you might come with the assumption that people have integrity, that they will work hard towards (coughs) targets, that they'll have commitment to things, they'll be responsible, that they'll have a kind of intrinsic motivation for stuff, that they're capable of directing their own efforts and being self-starters, and that they'll want their community, workplace, church, whatever, to do well. I wonder which of those kind of general feelings you have about people in your workplace or in your family and, what, and, which, and what, what approach does God have to us about these things which of these do you think is more like God's view you know you can't lead those you cannot love and God loves us and I think that I, I feel that the left hand side is not actually God's view of us. Because I believe God is very hopeful about how he can change our lives. God has, he created us with a huge vision for us. And I believe God is really hopeful about how that vision can play out. And so I think God leans into that right-hand column. I think he sees that we're messed up. He sees we're often in that left-hand column. But he has a massive plan for each of our lives. He has a divine design for each of us which involves drawing out our creativity, drawing out our passions and engaging us in his kingdom, in our place of work, all across our lives so that we become, we are co-workers with him working in this cosmos for the gospel, for the good of the community. That is God's vision for us. So it's an optimistic vision for us, but it's not a blind vision. It sees there are real issues in our heart that need dealing with, and we will come back to that before we finish. But just in case you might feel, mm, do you know, I possibly, possibly I am a bit lazy, I want to give some proposals and suggestions for you about that. And the first is this, that we would focus on other people, actually. It says the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. It's a slide for this. Peter says anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, I always find that a bit challenging because if you do brain work, you don't really qualify. It's interesting, isn't it? To do something with your hands. Maybe the brain counts as well. Yeah. But you see the point here. The point is, do you have something good to share with those who are in need? And the the biggest motivation for us to be diligent, to plough that field, to scatter, to harvest, to do whatever the means of production are in that work which God has given for you to do, is to engage in it so that you have something to share for the good of the wider community, for the good of the, your fellow human beings, for the good of your family. It is, this is the motivation that God sets before us. And then I would encourage us also to serve alongside others. We're not an island. We're not all-powerful. If we have any skills and talents, they were given to us from heaven. They were given for the service of the wider community and to do good for others. So we do it together with others. Mother Teresa says, I can, I can do what you can't do, and you can do what I can't do. Together we can do great things. And it's true. So um, Paul Johnson at King's Arms Church in Bedford has this on his desk. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. That's very, very true. So let's serve alongside others. And then just a very practical thing I found helpful about getting things done is this. Ask yourself, what is the next step to progress towards this goal? Because I don't know about you, sometimes I'm overwhelmed by a task which is hideously complicated. And I think, oh, I need to do that, but I can't do that till that's done, and I can't do that till that's done, and I can't do anything. Do you ever get trapped in that, or is it just unique to me? but sometimes if you just if instead of panicking if you just work back and say okay actually the the first thing that needs to be done is this then that's the next thing that needs to be done and all you actually need to do is the next thing and if you do the next thing then you're progressing towards the goal i found that very very helpful and i believe that no as christians we are wanting to work with god to see this world changed we're wanting to bring heaven to earth this will not be accomplished Uh, and is not accomplished but when we're lazy. But wonderfully, it is accomplished by the wonderful efforts that I see across so many in this church, whether it's with the food bank or parenting or healing on the streets. The kind of diligence that is shown is working in our community for good, and it is working for the gospel. So last week I was asserting and suggested that one of the outcomes of the Protestant Reformation Um, which many historians identify, although it is disputed by others, is that it gave rise to something of the Protestant work ethic. And that was largely because the Bible was put into people's own language. Luther translated it into German. In Britain, people like Tyndale, Coverdale translated the Bible and subsequently probably the most famous of the English translations, the authorised version of about 1611. 1611 which uh, really shaped the English language, even that we use today. And this promoted, people read all this stuff like in Proverbs, but they also read many other things in the Bible. And um, and I want to, I I believe that this released uh, things that led to things like the Industrial Revolution and led to the the development of science. Most of the early uh, scientists involved with the discoveries that led on to the flowering of scientific discovery, were strong believers in God. And unfortunately, since that time, there's a certain idea has crept in that science and religion are opposed And I want to say that I completely disagree with that. And this proverb, this section of Proverbs, would be one of the grounds on which I would say that. So we are called to be stewards of the creation. And because the Bible tells us that the creation is not a God, we do not worship the planet Earth. It is not a God in itself. It is something separate to God, made by God, given to us as God's viceroys, God's regents here on Earth to be those who convey the loving and tender rule of God into this planet. We are commanded to look after it, to be good stewards of it. Now, obviously, we haven't always been good stewards of it. We've polluted it, we've messed with it, and all the rest. But at heart, science is about that engagement with the creation that God mandated right at the beginning, recorded in the book of Genesis But, you know, for example, I want to take an example which I came across in a a book. It's very often you get this thing rolled out, that the church in the Middle Ages believed the earth was flat and that scientists discovered the earth was round and that the church resisted this discovery. You heard this kind of thing? You might have heard this. It's really quite commonly held by people. Um, That is a complete myth. It only started to be... It it was first um, brought forward in a book published only in 1896 by a professor, Andrew Dixon White, at Cornell University in his book, A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. And that's where he said that church leaders all through the Middle Ages had. and afterwards he later admitted this document was a fiction... Virtually every line in that book is a lie, and he did it because he had a grudge with Christianity, right? But that book became a set text in universities through to the middle. It was published 1896 through to the 1950s. It was a set text in universities, right? So it was... It's promulgated a completely false idea when actually if you go back and study texts all through the Middle Ages, everybody believed the earth was round, right? There were no educated people and all church leaders were educated. They spoke Latin, etc., etc. They all believed the earth is round and this is a fiction. So um, when people throw these things at us, we should not uh, believe these things. And even today, it's interesting, Rodney Stark, who's uh, written several very interesting books, he uh, works at a university in America, sociologist, he says, even today, amongst professors of science, religious faith is extremely common. He said, it's far more common for professors of science to be Christians than it is for professors in the humanities, the arts, and the social sciences. Right? People who are scientists are more likely to be believers because they actually see what this whole creation is like. They're like the man in the book of Proverbs who looks at the ant, who looks at what's happening in that field. They look at things in a quest for truth and that truth points many of them to faith in Christ. So, we, of course, we shouldn't be naive. There are scientific discoveries which are uh, incomplete and provisional and subsequently approved wrong. When our children were born, I've told this story before, we were told by the midwives and the um, community nurses that we must put them to sleep on their front. They subsequently decided that was actually dangerous and a bad idea and now they tell you you mustn't put them to bed on their front, you must always put babies to sleep on their back which I would have thought was a more natural thing to do anyway, but I imagine they thought it would main the child, if the child vomited, it would more easily clear its airway if it was sleeping on its front. But they were just wrong, and subsequently they changed their view. So science... Uh, Sometimes scientific discoveries come forward that seem to contradict Christianity. But if you wait long enough, I believe true scientific research will will dispel that uh, discovery and they'll form new opinions which actually concur with the Bible. For example, for many centuries, it was settled opinion amongst anyone who thought about things that the universe had existed forever, and yet the Bible says it has a beginning. But even the ancient Greeks believed the universe had existed forever. So it was in contradiction of the Bible. So when, at the beginning of the last century, the theories of the Big Bang started to come through, they started to discover from their observation of, of, of the cosmos that, in fact, it must have had a beginning, that there was initially quite a lot of resistance to that idea. And people, some people even said, well, we can't agree to that because that will show we agree with the Bible, right? <laughs> Because the Bible says it had a beginning. Well, now they all agree it did have a beginning and that concurs with what scripture says. But we've had to work, wait many centuries for that proof to come through. But if we wait long enough, science will always prove that the Bible is true. So our engagement with scientific discovery to apply my heart to what I observed and learn a lesson from what I saw, as we read in that proverb, that is the process of science, of technological development. And it is a good thing. So we uh, are pleased to be part of those things. Now, um, yes, we don't always make good use of these things, as I've already mentioned, the atom bomb. uh, You know, things like abortion. I I find it very hard to understand that as anything other than a very sad response. How can it be right to solve a problem by killing an innocent person? I find that very difficult. I know these are very complex things. I don't wish to be hurtful, but it's... for me, when you see pictures of even a six-week-old baby, um, they're just so extraordinary. It's such a miracle. I find it ever so hard to consider and conceive how one would plan to uh, kill such a, a child. And um, and it's interesting, even in this world, you know, when it was announced that Kate Middleton was pregnant, they immediately announced that she was pregnant with the heir to the throne. Uh, wait a minute! I thought it was supposed to be just a fetus. No, it's the heir to the throne. Isn't it interesting how, how we differ? You know, we're conflicted. Well, I would say yes. She's pregnant with the heir to the throne, and uh, because I think as soon as a an embryo, as soon as an embryo forms, as soon as the egg is fertilised, there is a person there actually, and. Um, so, we distribute wealth unevenly, don't we? Half, literally, billions of people don't have access to toilets, clean water, basic health care. People die in hundreds of millions from diseases that could easily be cured. What kind of a mess we're making of these things. Yes, it's true, but the endeavor of observing the creation is nevertheless a God given endeavor. And so, even if people reject God and deny God and are atheists, when they engage in science, they're doing what God commanded, actually. Now, they might not be doing it with the best of motives and they might be a bit willful about it, but anyway. But moving on then, as we come back then to what was talked about last week, because the thing is, we're not just foolish. That isn't the only problem we have. I'm foolish, but that's not the only problem I have. My other problem is I'm willful and I am rebellious and I act in ways that harm myself and that harm other people and I sometimes do that knowingly and willfully and wisdom does not sort that out i can have all the cognitive behavior therapy in the world and it will help me with some things but there come i've found there's a residual kind of willfulness and rebelliousness in me and i've seen it in my children when they were growing up and i see it in other people there's none so blind as those who will not see And that's why we need that other bit of salvation. It's great to have wisdom for our foolishness, but we need forgiveness for our sinfulness. We need a new heart for our uh, willfulness. And um, so moving to the next slide, a quote from Titus in a letter of the Apostle Paul to his friend Titus. At one time, we too were foolish, we were disobedient, we were deceived and we were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. I have been in that place. We need to know, as we were saying earlier, we're more sinful than we realize. This is what it's being described here. We are enslaved by these things. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. This is the experience many of us have. Uh, Every few weeks at least, if not more often than that. Who has never experienced this from others and who will say, well, that's never been true of me. Anyone want to put a hand up? And We don't just hate each other, we oppose and hate God himself. In every age there have been (coughs) those who despise God, despise faith, despise people of faith. I came across an article in The Guardian this week by Giles Fraser. He's an Anglican vicar in London. and He often does Thought for the Day on the Radio 4 morning news programme. Any of you have heard of Thought for the Day? It's a little religious slot, about two or three minutes they do every day. And it's a much disputed thing. And he writes this. He's quite hard-hitting. He says... Um, Uh, This is a picture of Charles Fraser. I've done Thought for the Day for many years, and I have loved doing it. The people who work on the slot on Radio 4's Today programme couldn't be nicer to me personally. And that goes for the presenters too. When I returned from heart surgery recently, they made a special point of welcoming me back. But when it comes to what I believe, they can barely conceal their condescension. And this is not about individual presenters. A culture of sniggering contempt towards religion is endemic within the BBC. And one acceptable way of demonstrating this is to slag off thought for the day. It's deeply, deeply boring, complained presenter John Humphreys, with all the critical sophistication of a slovenly adolescent squirming his way through morning prayer. Adding the description, we're now going to hear someone tell us that Jesus was really nice. His sidekick, Justin Webb, complained, they're all roughly the same, these thoughts for the days. Uh, if, if everyone was nicer to everyone else, it would be fine. And then he imagine you're there in the studio at the BBC with John Humphreys and Justin Webb just across the, through the glass. I don't know what it's like, but they're quite small, these radio studios. He says, imagine reading out your thought for the day, knowing that all this sneering and smirking is going on right in front of you. If you were just... If it were just about thought for the day, it might not matter quite so much. Sometimes the slot is good, sometimes it's not so good, but it has become a totem of the BBC's attitudes towards faith generally, that it's an embarrassing relative it has had to invite to the party, but one who can be made to sit in the corner and about whom it is acceptable to make jokes. Um, To the people at the BBC, religion is for the little people, for the stupid and the gullible. And it's easy to play this for laughs to a gallery of those who have read a few chapters of The Selfish Gene and think this has turned them into philosophical giants. Uh, we'll stop there. He's quite hard-hitting, don't you think? But, I mean, I listen to BBC, and I think it's detect what he says here is evidently detectable in what one hears. But... Um, we, must, we don't hate, we pray, right? And, um, and we recognize that actually this is a problem in the world. There's, there is resistance to God. We are willful. We are resistant to the good news of God. And this was, there's a French mathematician, philosopher Blaise Pascal. There's a slide for this, Peter. He wrote in the 1600s, men despise religion, right? He was converted to Christ. He was a very joyful follower of Christ. He said, men despise religion. They hate it and are afraid it may be true, right? That's one of our problems. I was, when people started talking to me about Christian faith, I didn't want it to be true because I wanted to live my own life. I wanted to go my own way. And if it was true, I knew it would have implications for how I lived. He said, the cure for this is one, first to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, to make it attractive, make good men wish it were true. And then three, show that it is true. Right? So what can save us from this superior belittling of faith, of Christianity, of any idea of God? Because when we belittle it, it cuts us off from the blessing of it. Well, I want to tell you, wisdom will not save you from that. But the grace of God can save us from that. We need this in-breaking. So Paul goes on back to Titus. He says, but when, the next slide, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life why wouldn't we want to receive such an opportunity? Because I think many people think it's not attractive. And that's where Blaise Pascal is so wise. It's our job, if we follow Christ, to make it attractive to other people so that they would begin to think, you know, maybe that's not such a weird, awful thing. Maybe it isn't tedious and irrelevant, but attractive. And so Just, I want you to speculate with you. What if God is not tedious and joyless and unloving, but the most wonderful being in the World universe, like Jenny was saying in our worship? What if he merits our respect and love? And so, I like to quote a section from John Piper's book, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, where he says this, if a lifeguard saves you from the undertow of the Atlantic Ocean, you don't care if he is gloomy. Do you agree? right. You don't care if he's gloomy. He can be as miserable as he likes. He saved you, right? It doesn't matter what his mental state is when you're hugging your family on the beach. But with the salvation of Jesus, things are very different. Jesus did not save us for our family, but for himself. If he is gloomy, our salvation will be sad. And that is no great salvation. Jesus himself and all that God is for us in him is our great reward, nothing less. I am the bread of life, he said. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Salvation is not mainly the forgiveness of sins, but mainly the fellowship of Jesus. Forgiveness gets everything out of the way so this fellowship can happen. If this fellowship is not all satisfying, there is no great salvation. If Christ is gloomy or even calmly stoical, eternity will be a long long sigh but the glory and grace of jesus is that he is and always will be indestructibly happy i say it is his glory because gloom is not glorious and i say it is his grace because the best thing he has to give us is his joy quote these things i've given to you jesus said that my joy may be in you my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full It would not be fully gracious of Jesus simply to increase my joy to its final limits and then leave me short of his joy. My capacities for joy are very confined. So Christ not only offers himself as the divine object of my joy, but pours out his capacity for joy into me so that I can enjoy him with the very joy of God. This is glory and this is grace. Jesus Christ is the happiest being in the universe. His gladness is greater than all the angelic gladness of heaven. He mirrors perfectly the infinite, holy, indomitable mirth of his Father. Yes! That's good. So, steady on, Andrew. That's why he fin- Paul then says this. This is a trustworthy saying, right? I want you to stress these things, that we are saved as a gift, right? So why does he say, I want you to stress these things? So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Because when we live that life out, it is good for our whole community. We become a blessing everywhere we go. And that's God's heart, to be that blessing So we rejoice in his grace. And then, as Paul says, I worked harder than them all, but not I, but the grace of God that was in me. And you understand? Hmm. I invite you to reach out in your spirit to this joyful God. Mm. don't you want him just to be around him you know it's so enriching to be around him when you get with jesus it's not condemnation you feel it's upliftment you feel 10 feet tall when you get around jesus you feel yes that there are there are moments of shame when you because once you feel close to him you think oh goodness why have i bothered with that stupid pornography why did I bother with being so obsessed with those possessions? Why, why am I messing around with drugs? And Why do I need to get drunk anymore? That's so stupid. You set free from it because you meet him. Everything gets into perspective and you're lifted up. Oh, it's so good to know the Lord. How we thank you, Father, for this grace that is shown us in Christ. Hmm. So bring before him all those talents God's given you. What, what field? Right? The, the, the wise person saw that field. It was all broken down. How is your field? Right? You, you don't need to make the field look posh to get acceptance with God. It's because you are accepted that you're going to go and work in that field. And you're going to make something good to share with others. And be a blessing. That's what you are doing. Be encouraged in it. Be blessed. Be confident. Be filled with hope. Because we are the hope of the world. We're the joy of the whole earth. By his grace, that's his calling upon us. Amen.